0: This morning's scripture reading is in Matthew 10, verses one through 15. Would you please stand for the reading of scripture? And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no one of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons. You received without pay, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bags for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter out, who is worthy, find out who is worthy in it there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or the town. Truly I say to you, it is more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for, these, than for that town. You may be seated.
1: Well, I encourage you to stay there in the 10th chapter of Matthew as we continue our steady march through Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> in the previous passage, which is Matthew 9, Verses 35 to 38, which Ryland covered for us last week, we saw Christ uh, work miracles among the people of Israel and having great compassion towards them. He saw them as helpless sheep without a shepherd. Moreover, he told his disciples that the harvest was plentiful, but the laborers are few. Speaking of the spiritual harvest of souls there. And he says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But we see that their part was not to be one of prayer only, for here in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospels, we'll see Christ commission his disciples to go out and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand to those around them. Just as a king would commission his messengers to proclaim his message and carry out his business throughout the land, so too is Christ commissioning his disciples to proclaim his gospel and even act on his behalf, performing miraculous works in his name and by his power. So as we look at these 15 verses together, we'll first be introduced to those whom Christ has called And secondly, we'll consider the commission that he gives them. Let's look first at the called. Our passage begins with Christ calling to him his 12 disciples. Now, while Matthew does not go into great detail into the calling of each and every one of these men, you'll remember that he does provide a glimpse at how some of them were called by Jesus to be his closest followers, such as the accounts concerning Peter and Andrew, James and John, and Matthew and himself. So often those uh, take place where Jesus comes to them while they are going about their business, their vocations, and they drop everything immediately to follow after Jesus. So when we get to chapter 10, we're not to read this as though these men are being called to Jesus for the very first time. Rather, he is calling them together. He's he's bringing them before him. They'd already followed him for quite some time now, and now he's gathering them for a very specific purpose, which is to be sent out to spread the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In calling them together, he's not merely taking care of an administrative necessity, some sort of huddle, before they break out in pairs and go about their evangelistic mission. I mean, it, it is that, no doubt, but it is also so much more than that. What we read here is that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. In giving them authority to do these things, Jesus gave them both the permission and the power to do so without his enabling they would have no ability no authority to perform such miraculous works and what do you notice immediately about the things which they are authorized to do here this is exactly what jesus has been doing This really reads like a summary of Jesus' ministry up to this point. Think of how it speaks of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, 24, we saw that they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Just last week in Matthew 9, 35, we saw Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It is no mistake here that Matthew is using the exact same language to speak of the authority that Jesus is giving the disciples. He's making it pretty much impossible for us to miss the fact that Jesus is giving them his authority over disease and demons and death. Because in the ancient world, when a messenger went forth on behalf of the king, he acted in the authority of the king. It was as if the king himself was standing before them. The messenger's words were to be received as the king's words. The messenger's actions were to be obeyed as the king's actions. So in his service to the king... The messenger carried the authority of the king himself. And this is just what we see here. Jesus has called to himself his messengers and given them the ability and the authority to act on his behalf for the furtherance of his kingdom. But who are these messengers? Who are these men? In verse 2, we're told that the messengers are his messenger. Apostles. The term apostle simply means sent ones. It comes to us from the Greek word apostolos. So you can hear in that word, it, our English word apostles is not a translation, it is a transliteration. They just took the Greek and made it a little bit more English for us rather than actually translate the word. The original word referred to those who were put forth, sent forth on a commission often as representatives of a king. These are the apostles who are these sent ones. Who are these apostles of King Jesus? Well, starting in verse 2, we have 12 names. They're given in six pairs of 2. Now, uh, a parallel passage, Matthew six, I'm sorry, Mark 6, we read that Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out 2 by 2. So no doubt what we find here in our passage is the manner in which they were paired up together. So let's look at verses uh, 2 through 4. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas... And Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. While it's not necessary, in fact, it's not even possible in several cases to give an extended biography of each of these men. it is worthwhile to provide a bit more detail so that this is not glossed over as merely a list of some names without context to their backgrounds, their personalities, and their role in the spread of the gospel. First, we have Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. These two were among the first disciples called by Jesus. Simon is also known as Cephas and also as Peter. And Andrew is his brother. And they were fishermen, and you'll recall that Jesus told them that he would make them fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, they left their whole livelihoods to follow after Jesus. And Peter is considered to be really the leader among the apostles. Of the twelve, he is in the primary position in so many instances throughout the gospel narratives. Next we have James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, This is another pair of brothers. They were actually in business together with Peter and Andrew. They were fishermen as well, and they worked together. And Jesus gave them the nickname, Sons of Thunder. Perhaps that had something to do with their temperament. For example, after receiving a less than warm welcome in a Samaritan village, it was these Sons of Thunder, James and John, that asked, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And and so these two were probably a bit more temperamental than the others, a little bit more passionate, and they were also among Christ's inner circle of disciples. Next, we have Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is also known as Nathaniel, so if you're in a different gospel and it's giving a list and you're not seeing the name Bartholomew, that's why. It's not uncommon in this era And in this location, the people have uh, really two names that they go by, a a Greek name and a more Jewish name. Philip's mentioned very seldom in the New Testament. And pretty much the only detail that we know is that he was from Bethsaida of Galilee, which we learn from John 12. Bartholomew, as I said, is also known as Nathaniel. And this is the disciple that cynically asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? after Philip came and told him that we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph in John nine. So he was a bit of a cynic. We have Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Thomas is at some points called Didymus, which is Greek for the word twin. So presumably he had a, a twin sibling, a brother or sister. He's known to us most often as Doubting Thomas or Thomas the Doubter. For he would later demand evidence for the apostles' claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. You remember he said that unless he he puts his fingers in the palms of his hands and thrusts his hand into his side where the spear struck him, he would not believe. Now Matthew doesn't add the unfortunate descriptor of doubter here. But he does refer to himself as the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector. Something that no other gospel writer does. Nobody else refers to him but himself as Matthew, the tax collector. You'll recall that a tax collector worked on behalf of, of the Roman occupiers. He was viewed as a traitor. A traitor both to his nation and to his faith. So no doubt Matthew kept this fact always in mind as he reflected on the great grace that was shown to him by Jesus. We have James, the son of Alphaeus, and and Thaddeus. James is also known sometimes as James the Less, and it's important to distinguish him from James, the brother of John, as well as James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. This is a different James altogether, very popular name. And there's not much known about this James in Scripture, apart from him being among the twelve disciples. Thaddeus is, uh, in other lists of apostles, also referred to as Labaius. He's also known as Judas, son of James. He's also referred to once as Judas, not Iscariot. In John 14, and who can blame him for going by a different name? Not wanting anyone to think that he was the same Judas as the betrayer of Christ. No doubt, post-World War II, the H section in the phone book looked quite a bit different after the rise of Hitler than it did before World War II. and In the same ways, I'm sure Judas was not a very popular name after Judas Iscariot. Then we have Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot. It's Simon who is paired with the more infamous of the two who share the name of Judas. And other than the fact that he was a zealot, little is known about Simon. But we still use the term zealot. We still use the term or the phrase someone who's overzealous or someone who is zealous. By meaning that someone who's radically devoted to a cause. They're, they're so passionate about this thing. Their, their zeal has taken them to places where they, they need to slow down a little bit. It's a little over the top. It's a little too much. The zealots were a movement at this time that was strongly opposed to Roman rule over Israel. So opposed that they would commit violence. They would even commit murder in pursuit of their goals. They were known for carrying daggers and using them in clandestine ways. And Simon was a zealot. He was a part of this group. We have Judas Iscariot, whose name is followed up by Matthew with the grim words, who betrayed him, him being Jesus. Because always and forever, this is how Judas will be known. For he would commit the unthinkable crime of betraying Jesus to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. These are the apostles. These are the messengers. These are those that Jesus has called to himself to be his closest followers. These men are not scholars. These men are not teachers. These men are not wealthy. They are not influential. They are fishermen. They are men from different regions. One, a cynic. One, a collaborator with the Roman occupiers. And another, whose zeal would draw him to be willing to kill the Roman occupiers. Men from different backgrounds. One, even who Jesus would refer to as a devil. These are the men that Jesus called together. This is not the dream team that anyone in this world would have put together to, to start and spread this new religion. They were, as the book of Acts tells us, uneducated, common men. Yet these are the men whom Jesus called to be his messengers, his ambassadors, his apostles. And that is so like God. We see that throughout where God chooses the weak and lowly things of this world because by doing so, he brings himself all the more glory. They have been called by him for a purpose, and that is to be sent out to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of Christ. So now that they have been called, let's look to how they were commissioned. We'll look now at the commission. Now, to be commissioned is to be given a very particular mission. It's also to be equipped with the ability and the authority to carry out that mission. What we'll see here is that the Apostles' commission is very specific in detail, and it is very limited in scope. It's specific in detail and limited in scope, and that is to be expected. General Eisenhower, as supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in World War II, did not gather together his officers and say, win the war, go do it. No, officers send specific soldiers to specific places to achieve specific goals objectives, take that hill, clear that house, secure that bridge, that sort of thing. So what we see here is these specific men are sent to a specific people with a specific mission. So let's look at the particulars of this commission that they are given. We'll read verses 6 through verse 15 of this gospel. So we'll back up to five. Uh, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter in, I lost my spot. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town." We see that these specific men, these apostles, are being sent to a, a specific people. They are not to go among the Gentiles, that is, n- among the non-Jews. They're not to go to any town of the Samaritans. Samaria being a region uh, filled with both pagan foreigners and then spiritually corrupt Jews. Instead, the apostles are sent specifically and exclusively to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, why is this? Does, does Jesus not love Gentiles? Does God not care about the Gentiles? Well, of, of course he does. We're all here. We're all Gentiles in this sense. It is not out of a hatred for or an apathy toward The Gentiles or the Samaritans that they are given this instruction. It is out of a a love, a particular love and compassion for Israel. These lost sheep, the, the harassed and helpless, which Jesus had compassion on in the previous passage. You recall that Jesus described himself this way He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was part of God's redemptive plan that the good news of Christ and his kingdom would be first proclaimed to Israel. This was to fulfill the many promises and prophecies that had been made from the very beginning. Recall that God had long ago promised his Messiah to rescue and redeem his people time and again. You see that come up throughout all the prophets of the Old Testament is also meant that the gospel was to be brought through Israel. It was through Israel that that God would bring the other nations, as Paul would later write of the gospel, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not only was this a long-standing promise of God to send Christ to them, them being Israel, it was also a long-standing promise of God to reach the nations through them. Remember what God promised Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. God promised Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of Israel, God told Isaiah, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. As this redemptive history unfolds, we see God work powerfully through one Jewish man in particular, a Pharisee of Pharisees, the Apostle Paul, to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. Paul identified himself as the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans 11. He wrote to the Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So yes, God will bring the the good news of the kingdom to the Gentiles. He is going to do that through the Jews, through Israel's. Christ's gospel would go through all the ends of the earth and it would begin with Israel. And so these specific men are sent out to this specific people and they're given this specific mission to carry out let's look again at verses 7 and 8 and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick raise the dead cleanse the lepers cast out demons you received without pain give without pay their mission is clear proclaim to all that the to all that the kingdom of heaven is at hand this is the same message that was heralded by John the Baptist. is the same message proclaimed by Jesus himself. And the word here for proclaim is the same as what is translated elsewhere as preach. The message they are to preach is that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. All Jews were eagerly awaiting a movement of God by which he would restore his kingdom on this earth. But why should anyone listen to this odd assortment of men. No credentials to speak of, no influence, no wealth, no power, not particularly articulate or educated. And they're going about in pairs throughout the area. Why should anyone listen to what they have to say about the kingdom so long awaited actually now being at hand? Well, to validate their ministry, to give credibility to their message jesus grants them the ability to heal the sick raise the dead cleanse the lepers cast out demons without giving them his authority they could not preach much less could they perform miracles but again we see that these are the very acts which jesus himself had performed time and again throughout his ministry And now the disciples will not only have borne witness to his deeds, but by his power and authority, they are able to perform them as well. How much does that tell us about the deity, the power of Christ, that not only was he able to perform miracles, but he could bestow the ability on mere humans, the ability to do the same. And they're to perform these miracles, not as a means of drawing attention to themselves, Not as a way of enriching themselves, but to bless others. The apostles were instructed not to charge for these miracles in any way. They're not to receive payment for this in any way. Instead, they're to freely give to others as as they freely received from Christ. Jesus gives some additional instructions on how this mission is to be carried out. Just as a a soldier, a sailor, a marine, an airman, they all have a code of conduct, so too must the apostles carry out their mission in a way that is right and honorable. Look at what he says in verses 9 through 11. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals, or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter... Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. The apostles are instructed to go at once. This is so urgent they're not to worry about gathering together and acquiring the types of things typically needed for any sort of journey. So urgent is their mission that they're not to bring extra clothing They're not to worry about what they're going to eat along the way. Instead, they're to wholly rely on the provision of the Lord during these missionary endeavors. Later in reflecting on these days, Jesus is going to ask in Luke chapter 22, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. They had to completely rely on God. And they found him to be faithful in providing for their needs. They lacked nothing as they set out to proclaim the gospel. And that is what we can expect. As the famed missionary Hudson Taylor said of his own experience, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Well, part of that supply came in the form of hospitality. The laborer deserves his food, and God would provide their food and everything else they needed through the generosity of others. The apostles were to find out who was worthy in each town they entered and stay there until they left. Now, that's not a comment on any merit on the part of the homeowner. Instead, it refers to their openness to the apostles' ministry, as shown by their hospitality. In such cases, they would bless that house with the traditional Jewish greeting of shalom or, or peace. And they were to stay there. They weren't to stay there until they found a better place to be and then insult those people and go to that nicer house. They were to stay there until they left. They were to give their peace to that house and, and take up that hospitality as was offered. But if they were rejected... If their hospitality was denied, they were not to leave their blessing on that place. How could any true peace remain where the gospel was unwelcome? Moreover, they were to, they were to shake the dust from their feet as a sign of not wanting to be in any way tainted by their godlessness. This was a common thing that the Jews did. In fact, if the Jews were to travel through some Gentile territory before they got back into Jerusalem, they were to shake off all their clothes because they didn't want any of that Gentile dust tainting the holy place of Jerusalem. This is, this is a common thing. Phrase that is used, you'll find it at several points in the New Testament. They're to, to shake that dust off as a symbolic gesture towards those who rejected the things of God. Jesus said in that parallel passage in Mark 6 that they were to do so as a testimony against them. This is exactly what Paul and Barnabas would run into during their own missionary endeavors later, which is actually uh, the inflection point for Paul becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. We read this, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy, of eternal life. Behold, we are going to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they, Paul and Barnabas, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What do we see in this passage? We see that Paul declares that the gospel is meant to come to you first. It's meant to come to Israel first so that you might be a light to the nations, but you judge yourselves unworthy. It's not that Paul and Barnabas said, oh, you're not worthy, I'm not going to try. They judged themselves unworthy of these blessings by rejecting it, much as what we see in our own passage. And so as they left, they shook the dust from their feet against them. They're simply to move on. The apostles here are not meant to keep banging their head against the wall to try to witness to a people who don't want to hear it who don't want anything to do with them. They're to move on in the knowledge that it's not they who are being rejected, but God. As Jesus would tell the 72 disciples in Luke 10, whom he sent out in much the same way, two by two, he said, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. As Jesus says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, those infamous cities of the Old Testament destroyed for their rampant wickedness than for these houses and towns who reject the king and his kingdom. Why is that? Why, if you recall the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, so wicked that God rained down fire and brimstone and turned that sand to glass, pretty much. No one has ever been able to rebuild it in the coming generations, there's no sign of it left, how is it that these towns will face even stricter judgment than they? Because Sodom and Gomorrah did not have such works done or such words proclaimed in them as they were having done by the apostles. And so they bore greater judgment. It makes you think of our own nation. So saturated in scripture and yet rejecting the Savior. How much worse will it be on the day of judgment for the West and the United States than it was even for Sodom and Gomorrah. If the message of the apostles was rejected, they were instructed to to shake off the dust from their feet and move on. They're not to cast their pearls before swine, as Jesus said earlier in Matthew. Their work is too urgent for that. The mission is too important for that. The harvest is too plentiful. The workers are too few. These men were sent to the people with this mission and they were to carry it out with a great sense of urgency. That is what we see happening here in our passage. We see them being called. We see them being commissioned. They see them being given specific instructions on how to carry out the mission that they have been given. But what is it that we can draw from this passage? Apart from the inspiration at the faithful witness of of Christ's apostles, which there certainly is that. But unlike these apostles, we have not been given the authority or or the ability over unclean spirits or to raise the dead or, or to heal every disease and every affliction. Our evangelistic efforts are not strictly limited to one people group. Nor are we to take these very, very specific instructions for this very specific ministry endeavor to be a rule of life for either the believer or the missionary. There's nothing wrong with someone going off to the mission field and bringing a couple extra pairs of clothes. That is not what we find here as our takeaways. Yet, what we see in our passage is not entirely dissimilar to our own calling as followers of Christ. We, too, are called. 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us that Christians are likewise called by God. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Now, that's not true for the believers of Corinth only. It is true for all believers. All Christians have been called by God into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Also, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy we who follow christ do so only because he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light in fact the very word church ecclesia in the greek means literally called out ones we are called out of the darkness and not for ourselves only but that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who did so And yet, like the first apostles, who would have ever assembled the groups of people who gather together week in and week out in our churches? People of different ages, different backgrounds, different races, different nationalities, different levels of wealth, power, and influence, different interests, different families, different everything. What is it that bands them together. What is nothing other than shared faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus has called to himself a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, and just about any other geographic, demographic, socioeconomic, or really any other categorization you can come up with. And just as with the apostles, this was not because we were so wonderful and and so enticing and so appealing and just so cool that Jesus really wanted to hang out with us. That is not the case at all. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 paints this picture. For consider your calling, brothers, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord." We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to boast about that we have assembled here today. We have nothing to brag about or be prideful of the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ because Jesus specifically chose us, not because of attributes that we have, but in spite of attributes that we have. We were not wise. We were not powerful. We were foolish, weak, weak. Lo, in the world, nothing. And that is who Jesus called to himself, just as he did with his apostles. Our only boast is in the Lord, for only through his grace are we saved, and only by his power are we able to share that grace with others. So we too, like Matthew, the tax collector, ought not forget who we were when he found us and who we were before we may, he made us his own. Remember that, so that we might be all the more ready and eager to proclaim to others what he has done for us. We are called. We also are commissioned. Although at this point in history, the apostles were instructed to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Christ commissioned each and every believer, saying, Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is not a commission only to the disciples, only to the followers that heard these words of Christ. Yes, they were faithful, and bringing the the gospel to many. You read what the apostles did later through church history and tradition. we, We understand, though not recorded in scripture, that some went to India, to Asia. Paul was making his way up to Spain. They went through all the world, but they couldn't possibly complete this in their lifetimes, particularly cut short by martyrdom. This is a command for all of us. So more than merely giving us our orders, he has intentionally and strategically placed us in our cities and our schools and our jobs in our neighborhoods in our social circles in our families this is strategic we have by his providential hand been sent to a specific place and to a specific time to a specific people to serve as his witnesses each of us are tasked with proclaiming the gospel to those around us but we need not despair of our weakness to accomplish such an important mission. The apostles were not equipped by their own strength but with Christ's. And though we do not have his miracles to perform, we do have his word to proclaim and it is his word that is the power of God unto salvation. Our task is just to be faithful to the commission that we have been given, trusting God to work in and through us as he has promised. We are called, we are commissioned, and our task is likewise urgent. The apostles were to immediately embark about the king's errand. And they were not to allow themselves to become distracted from their mission. They were to proclaim the gospel to the Jews, performing miracles to verify their message. And if they were rejected in one place, they were to continue immediately to the next. Because as we saw at the end of chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers, a few. How much more ready is that harvest? This remains true today. There is still great work to be done and few laborers to bring in the harvest which God has prepared. So we are to proclaim that gospel. And if it is vociferously rejected time and again, we are to move on to other parts of the field, more fruitful parts, because our task is urgent. They proclaim that the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, how much nearer is the culmination of his kingdom now that 2,000 years have elapsed since this passage took place? We cannot afford to become sidetracked from the mission we have been given. We cannot afford... To go about as if this life and its treasures are our primary purpose in our life. We saw the apostle write that no soldier entangles himself with civilian pursuits. Well, we ought to view ourselves in that same way, not to entangle ourselves in the pursuits of this world, but see first and foremost our role as bringing the light to those who remain in darkness there is coming a time when there will be no more labor for the king will return to gather what is his so we dare not delay we dare not get distracted we dare not be apathetic towards the great work to which we have been called instead we are to pray for workers to enter into the harvest We are to give sacrificially to those engaged in missions and the work of the ministry. And as we see in the apostles, we are to obey the command of our king who called us into service to go out and proclaim his kingdom to the lost. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths that we find in your word. We recognize, God, that these things were not said only for the benefit of your 12 apostles, as they were to set out and go about their work, but there are, there are principles here for us to draw as well. There are commands embedded in this narrative that we are to obey, that we are to see in this, an example of how we are to approach this life, how we are to approach others, not lording over them our, our status as citizens of heaven, but urging, compelling them to come. To come to Jesus. So we ask that you would enable us to do so, that you, by the power of your Spirit at work in us, would enable us with with the opportunities, with the words to say, the boldness to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. For we know, Lord, that it is your desire that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue would come to the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that in your providence, in your mercy, in your goodness, you have chosen to work in and through us to bring that about. Lord, help us to be faithful to the calling to which we have been called, to carry out the commission which you have given us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.